0: Jodcast with Fiona Healy, Haritina Mukasanu, Ian Morrison, Charlie Walker, Hannah Stacey, Indy Leclerc, and Yunje Ma.
1: Hello everyone
0: and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Fiona Healy and joining me in the studio today are Hannah Stacey and Charlie Walker. In the show this time, Charlie interviews Dr. Yin-Jai Ma about the CMB and limits of cosmology, and Ian Morrison and Haritina Mogasanu take a look at what's happening in the October night sky. But first, before
2: all that, here's Indy with this month's news.
3: This month in the news, a new state of affairs on Mars, gravitational waves revisited, and Indian astronomy takes flight. This was the one many people had been waiting for. On Monday the 28th of September... Scientists from NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, or the MRO mission, announced to the world that evidence for liquid water had been found on Mars. The presence of the H2O molecule on the red planet had been established since the 70s, with the Mariner 9 spacecraft providing images of geological features such as dry riverbeds and canyons, which are direct evidence for liquid water having been present on Mars at some point in the past. The Viking missions to Mars provided the first detection of water molecules present in the Martian soil, and these were found by the gas chromatograph mass spectrometer when soil samples were heated. Frost was even visible at the Viking 2 landing site, which was one of the colder areas on Mars. Subsequent missions over the years have consolidated the evidence for water on Mars, most famously large polar ice caps located slightly below the surface were first detected by the Mars Odyssey spacecraft, and the presence of water ice was confirmed by Odyssey's lander, Phoenix. Finding liquid water on Mars, though, posed its own set of problems. For one, liquid water as it is on Earth cannot exist on the surface of Mars given the temperature and pressure conditions. The atmospheric pressure is about 6 millibars, which is just below water's triple point. For reference, the atmospheric pressure on the Earth's surface is 1 bar, or 10 to the 5 pascals, which is roughly 150 times more than that. This means that while temperatures on the surface can surpass 0 degrees Celsius, in these conditions water ice just sublimates directly into water vapour without going through the liquid phase. There are some exceptions to this. Uh, Low lying areas on the planet, for example in the impact crater called Hellas Planitia, it's deep enough that the atmospheric pressure actually reaches about 11.5 millibars, which is above the triple point, so liquid water could exist there at a temperature of greater than zero degrees. But, as most of our listeners will know, dissolving things in water can change its properties. So it is with salt water. The more salt you dissolve in water, the lower the freezing point of the water gets. Seawater, which contains about 3.5% salt by weight, freezes at minus 1.8 degrees Celsius. Fully saturated salt water, when it's about 23% salt by weight, freezes at minus 21 degrees. So, all this is to say that liquid water is definitely still possible on Mars, provided you allow for some impurities in the liquid. And this is where the recent discovery comes in. So, as we've mentioned previously in the JODcast, and there is a an end about this a bit later in this episode, Scientists studying images from the MRO, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, have been interested for several years now in in thin, dark streaks visible across the slopes uh, of the red planet. These were dubbed recurring slope lineae, or RSLs, due to the fact that they change in appearance according to the the season. They darken and appear to flow down steep slopes during warm seasons, but they fade in cooler seasons. And they appear in several locations on Mars when temperatures are above minus 23 degrees Celsius and disappear at colder times. So the variation of the RSL has been observed for several years, and most Mars scientists suspected that they were composed of some kind of liquid briny water. And the confirmation came thanks to the imaging spectrometer aboard the MRO known as CRISM. It detected the signature of hydrated minerals known as perchlorates in the the RSLs. And perchlorates are simply a type of salt, like sodium chloride, that can be dissolved in water. And when you dissolve perchlorates into water, the freezing temperature lowers by quite a bit. On top of that, the perchlorates were only detected when the RSLs were at their widest. So it lends credence to the idea that the perchlorates themselves are kind of behind uh, the phenomenon of the widening and narrowing lines on the slopes of Mars. But you shouldn't start imagining sort of a river flowing down a slope. Uh, Scientists envisage the RSLs as sort of shallow subsurface flows, with water wicking to the surface that explains the darkening that's visible on the images. Of course, the presence of liquid water, however salty, is seen as a tantalising hint at the presence of life. Extremophile bacteria can survive on Earth in similarly salty conditions and other extreme conditions, but for the moment the MRO scientists are going to continue observing the liquid flows on different areas of Mars. Only 3% of Mars' surface has actually been covered at the resolution of the MRO, and With NASA's stated ambition to get to Mars by the late 2030s, the red planet will be the subject of ever-increasing scrutiny in the decades to come. In other news, the gravitational wave detection experiment LIGO has been reopened for business after a five-year, 200 million US dollar upgrade. LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, and its updated incarnation has been dubbed Advanced LIGO. The instrument's goal is to achieve the first ever detection of gravitational waves, the ripples in the fabric of space-time that are caused by large gravitational events such as the collision between two black holes. These gravitational waves were predicted by Einstein all the way back in 1915 when he came up with his general relativity equations. To actually detect these, LIGO needs to measure the minute deformations of space-time over very large distances. The detector actually looks for deviations in the path of two kilometer long perpendicular laser beams, which bounce off a system of mirrors and then interfere with each other. If the beams are perturbed by gravitational waves, the length of the path taken by the lasers will change, and the LIGO detectors can pick up this change. They're so sensitive that they can detect a path length difference as small as one part in 10 to the power 22. Now, to give you an idea of how ridiculously sensitive that is, according to Laura Cardinati, who's a LIGO collaborator from the Georgia Institute of Technology, that tiny change is the equivalent of a hair's width change in the distance between the sun and Alpha Centauri, so it's really incredibly small. So what were the upgrades, you might ask? LIGO ran its twin detectors in Washington State and Louisiana for several years without detecting anything, and a big problem that the scientists encountered was the impact of outside perturbations. The detectors are so sensitive that the vibrations from a falling tree nearby ...would drown out any real signal and, and perturb uh, the laser paths. So for one of the detectors which was actually on a timber plantation... ...observations could only really be done at night and on the weekends. Advanced LIGO has a vastly improved dampening system... ...sort of a shielding system... ...which should be able to protect the laser from any sort of outside vibrations... ...and should be able to keep the laser beam stable for long periods of time... ...allowing for continued observation over several days. So Advanced LIGO is now three times as sensitive as before... But in three months' time, it will shut down for even more improvements. And when it reopens about nine months later, it's going to be ten times as sensitive as the first-generation LIGO and should be able to spot gravitational waves originating up to 120 megaparsecs, that's 326 million light-years, away uh, on a regular basis. The LIGO scientists expect to see waves coming from mergers of binary neutron stars. These are events that should generate strong predictable signals, but they don't know precisely how many to anticipate. Gravitational wave science is still in its infancy, and scientists aren't really sure which models they can trust just yet. According to MIT physicist Rainer Weiss, who's one of the co-founders of the LIGO project, the first detections will be quite dramatic for us. The first thing we need to sort out is whether we truly believe what we're seeing. However, the scientists are certain they will find something, and the door to a whole new realm of astrophysics will finally, hopefully, be prized open. Lastly, India's space program has launched its first space observatory, The satellite, dubbed AstroSat, was launched from an island in the Bay of Bengal and successfully placed in orbit 650 kilometers above the Earth. The observatory has a plethora of instruments on board, spanning multiple wavelengths. It's equipped to take observations in visible light, ultraviolet, and low and high energy X-rays, and is also carrying an X-ray sky monitor to detect transient X-ray emissions and gamma-ray bursts. Astrosat will give Indian astronomers new research opportunities and ease their dependence on observatories abroad. The satellite has a mission life of five years and it's aiming to study star birth regions and high energy processes, amongst other things.
2: Thanks for that, Indy. Now, Charlie interviews Dr. Yun-Jai Ma about the limits of cosmology.
1: Today I'm interviewing Dr. Yinze Ma, who is an employee here at JBCA. Welcome to the Jobcast.
4: Thank you, and it's my great pleasure to sit here and talk to the people. No problem.
1: It's going to be really interesting having you talk. So um you aren't here for very long, though. That's, uh, you've been here for how long now?
4: Uh, yes, I've been here for one year. So I did my PhD in University of Cambridge in uh, uh, with Professor George F. W. and finished in 2011. And then I went to University of British Columbia in uh, Vancouver, Canada to do my postdoc. Uh, working with uh, Professor Douglas Scott and Gary Hingshaw.
1: And we've had him on the show before, I think.
4: Yeah, we had Douglas before here. He <laughs> came to visit here and gave a colloquium before. Yeah. And then, uh, so last year I moved to University of Manchester as a second postdoc. Here I work with Professor um uh, Richard Batty, uh, Professor Clive Dinkinson, and the other professors as well. And, and what is
1: it you work on, mainly?
4: Here I we work on uh, the so-called 21-centimeter intensity mapping. Sounds a little bit like a particular uh, kind of high tech, but actually it, it's meaning is just, just trying to map out the neutral hydrogen in the low redshift of the universe by using the radio telescope, such as the, uh, you know, future square kilometer array in South Africa and Australia, or the experiment that we are proposing, which is so-called BINGO, B-I-N-G-O, which is supposed to be in Brazil. So basically, we try to map out the neutral hydrogen distribution at low ratio of the universe and using that distribution to probe whether the dark energy, how does the dark energy dominate at low ratio of the universe and making the universe accelerate expanding. So we are involving the modeling of the distribution of the 21 centimeter and also we are involving in the building of the computer technique to uh, putting out a very weak signal from the received sky we observe from the SKA, etc. Awesome.
1: So let's do a a little bit of jargon busting there for a second. So you look at the 21 centimeter line in a low redshift universe. So um, a low redshift, that means sort of modern day universe, right? Not too far back in time. What sort of time period are you
4: looking at? Yeah, so basically for the recent billions of years, not really far away. So uh, after the dark energy started to dominate the universe, we look at that period, which is very recent, billions of years.
1: And for any uh, listeners who aren't familiar with the subject, uh, the universe has three eras, isn't that right? An era where... Radiation dominates, matter
4: dominates, and dark energy dominates. Yes, in the very early time of the universe, basically the first 10,000 years, it was the uh, domination of the radiation. And then, because radiation just uh, diluted very fast, very quickly, so later on, the matter, such as ordinary matter and dark matter, dominated the whole universe. So the major cosmic budget in the medium regime of the cosmic evolution is matter. In the early regime, it was radiation. In the medium regime, it's matter now we've moved on into the new era which is which is dark energy domination basically the because the matter just diluted as the universe expanding uh, it's also diluted but however the dark energy so called vacuum energy is keeping on the density to be a constant so that therefore at some point the matter density will drop under the vacuum energy. So that's why we enter into this dark energy dominate. As a result, observationally, the dark energy, which is the so-called vacuum energy, is just pushing everything away from us, so making the universe accelerate expanding.
1: Yes, yeah, so this is why we're now accelerating and expanding away from everything else, which is why the sky yeah. will be dark. And we'll come to that in a second. So you specialise in lots of cosmological stuff, which is really interesting. And you gave a talk entitled, How Much Cosmological Information Can Be Measured? So one of the things I'm sure that lots of listeners are familiar with is the cosmic microwave background and those images that you see from Planck and from WMAP before it of the CMB maps, which look sort of like blue and yellow stippled atlases of the sky, in a sense. Now, we've seen these before, obviously, but could you give us a brief recap on what the CMB is?
4: Yeah, so the CMB is the, is the term so-called cosmic microwave background radiation. So it is photon. It is a photon from the uh, very early universe, which are Basically, the so-called relics of the Big Bang. So after the Big Bang, the photons and byrons, etc, they are mixing together as a plasma, like a fluid all together. So they, uh, the fluid has a sound wave, basically. They just uh, propagate throughout the universe at, in the speed of a sound wave. But because the universe is expanding, so the temperature is cooling down, at some point, the photons are decoupled with the baryons. So uh, that time scale is roughly about uh, 400,000 years since the Big Bang. After that, the photon, because the photon decouple with the baron, so the photon will just uh, become a relic in the universe. So what we observe in the microwave frequency region is to observe the distribution of such photons. And because the photon decouple with the baron in early time, and it doesn't really interact with any other matter later in the universe, so we can use a photon as a very good tracer of what happened in the very early universe. And that's why we are interested in the cosmic microwave background. So is it right to say that that's the earliest light that we can see in the universe? Yeah, pretty much. Because right now we haven't uh, sort of detected the neutrino. I mean, if we were able to detect neutrino, or if we can detect neutrino in the future, we should be able to see uh, even further, because neutrino decouple with the other matter even earlier than the photon. So if we can really see the neutrino, let's say a neutrino if another sort of light, and if we can see the neutrino, then we can probe even earlier. But right now, all of the astronomy is based on the electromagnetic field spectrum. you know, spectrum. Yeah, so right now, if we can only see the photon, then that's really the earlier light we can see.
1: Yeah, we've got some experiments going to try and detect uh, neutrinos, but uh, it's quite
4: difficult. It's not? quite difficult because very, very weakly interact, and we are not even known these mass and flavor and, the you know, three eigenstate distribution, etc. A lot of very fundamental things still haven't been understood yet. So I think using neutrino as a tool to probably in the early universe is still a little bit mature at the, at the present time. But, uh, I mean, who knows? Uh, the things happen very fast. Yeah, so.
1: yeah who knows what the, what the future brings. So um, back to the CMB. What we see when we look at these maps is we see these, well, they're pretty much like atlases. They're flat oval shapes and they have this red and blue stippling. And this stippling refers to sort of the amplitudes of the photon energy. Is that correct? Yes,
4: yes, yes. It's basically the temperature of the photon. Photon, It's the temperature of the photons. Cool.
1: But um, one thing that you don't hear very often is, uh, well, actually, these are like atlases. These are projected onto a 2D plane. And actually, this CMB, it has a thickness, right, which refers to sort of a a length
4: universe. yeah so there, it has a so-called thickness roughly about uh, 50 megaparsec so megaparsec is another astronomy term so uh, roughly about uh, mega is 10 to the 6 as you know parsec roughly about 10 to the 26 or so meter etc so uh, you can convert that into the real kilometer meters so it's basically a distance where the photon it's a horizon size where the photon decouples from the barons at the time as I said 400,000 years when it was decoupled and this basically is a size where the horizontal universe by the time is. So the photon can travel freely within the horizon. But after that, the photon just become a relic and it can't be interacted with anything else. There is a finite thickness. But however, we can't really see very deeply into that thickness because of the optical depth. I mean, this is another astronomy world. So optical depth means the interaction rate between photon and the other barons, like the electrons, are pretty high. So the universe... Before that, it was like, uh, like a mist, like, you know, like when it's gloomy or it's before it's raining.
1: Yeah, you look out in the morning and you can't see very far. Because... You can't see
4: very far. And that's the same reason as the CMB. So you can't really tr- see into the, uh, that thickness of 50 microseconds. Mm. All you can see is a two-dimensional sphere where the photon left the interaction with baryons and imprinting on the sky with the hot and cold spot which are, you know, higher temperature region and lower temperature region.
1: And the blue spots, the lower temperatures, and the yellow are the higher temperatures. And you had a great analogy which you gave to sort of try and visualize what these things actually are. It was to do with pebbles, wasn't it?
4: Oh, yeah. So uh, if you drop a pebble into a uh, very quiet water pond, and it will make these kind of ripples. A and circular
1: ripple which spreads out.
4: Yeah, it's a circular ripple which spreads out. This is this is just uh, like the perturbation. If you make a perturbation in the space-time, such as some random fluctuations, then the perturbation will be propagated. And it is the, I mean, the so-called baron and photon fluid... Before the recombination era is exactly like this. So it will propagate at a sound speed exactly like the ripples propagated when you drop a pebble into a water pond. So that's what we see actually in the CMB sky. We see all of these uh, red and blue spots and these are the perturbations. And of course, there isn't just one perturbation in the universe. Mm. It's a bit we- messy. Yeah, it's a little bit messy. So the whole universe has a lot of random perturbations. But if you stack all of the hotspots all together and cutting down a region around the hotspot, stack all of them together, and if you stack all of the spots all together, you will be able to see such kind of ripples, and you will be able to see the so-called characteristic ring around each of the hotspot and cold spot, And that's a typical scale of the baryon acoustic oscillation. Basically, how does ripple propagate it from the beginning of the universe? Mm. So, um, so it looks more like if
1: you're dropping a fistful of gravel into the water instead, all of these ripples interfere with each other. But then you can recreate the individual ripples by comparing them to each other.
4: Yes, yes, exactly.
1: And um, these ripples, these perturbations, these are weird things. What caused them? Does anyone know?
4: Right now, our understanding is that the uh, sources of these classical perturbations is due to the early time quantum fluctuation in the early universe. And even though you have a vacuum uh, in the early time, that the vacuum isn't just a very steady sort of status. It always has some fluctuations, always has some jumping up and jumping down. This virtual
1: is, particles popping in and out of existence yes. All, yes. Sorts of yes yeah. all sorts of crazy stuff. Yes,
4: do all sorts of crazy stuff. Sometimes a virtual particle can be created and they could be annihilated later. But the, So the net effect, although is zero, but there could be such kind of process going on and on again. Random fluctuation always exists in the quantum physics. So at early time, uh, this is really the sources of our classical perturbation. Well, so, in so in principle, is. all of our galaxies, all of these giant astronomical structure we see like the planet like the stars like the galaxies like cluster etc if you trace all of them back they're all due to the quantum fluctuation at early time
1: Mm. so if you look at if you look at one of the ripples in the CMB and it's say a hot spot or a cold spot then what in the universe where that ripple was once was there may now be a galaxy or there may now be a void
4: Yes, yes, that, right? yes, that provides a seed of fluctuations. So mm. the hot and cold spots we see in the CMB roughly represent the perturbation at order magnitude 10 to the minus 5. And the, right now we see these big galaxies like our Milky Way, et cetera, Andromeda, et cetera. All of these are due to the initial fluctuation from the CMB time.
1: So you can imagine that small perturbations would attract well if there was a little bit more matter in one area it would collapse and then it would eventually become a galaxy or it would eventually become a big dust cloud and that would collapse to galaxies and that sort of thing is that how it works
4: yes yes this is the whole process go to non-linear basically if you think about the universe at early time the universe is almost smooth but if you have a tiny fluctuation and then that just creates a little bit more matter And then as it creates more matter, then the gravitational potential will become bigger and it will attract more matters. So everything eventually will will be collapsed.
1: So over billions of years, it can have a a massive effect, which is really cool.
4: And it's really cool that
1: we can learn about it with the CMB. But part of your talk was uh, on how much... Information can actually be measured. And that wasn't just uh, because of our limitations in technology, but that was also due to the fact that we've got nature working against us in a sort of sense, isn't that right? So eventually we won't be able to see the CMB anymore.
4: Basically, um, right now we can see the CMB, no problem. As But however, as we said, in the future, dark energy dominates our universe. So it just drives the universe as expanding, making everything far away from us. Basically, we will be very alone in the very far future. So therefore, in the very, very far future, because the CMB photon will be stretched out as the universe is expanding, the f- wavelengths will be stretched out. So therefore, the effective energy will going down. And so it will become fainter and fainter. Become fainter and fainter, become colder and colder. And therefore, at the very, very, very far future, when the universe is completely dominated by the vacuum energy, uh, the vacuum energy itself has some intrinsic temperature. We call it Gibbons-Hawking temperature. And when the CMB temperature is going to be below that Gibbons-Hawking temperature, then it just completely lost it in the vacuum energy. Mm. And we will never be able to see it. And this is so-called Gibbons-Hawking region, where or Gibbons-Hawking time, basically, that we will not be able to assess the CMB temperature anymore. But that's really very, very far away, billions of billions of years later, so we don't need to worry for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. We, um, we don't have to work too much faster. There is always something to think about, I guess. But um, there were some other effects as well, which might actually interfere... Before then, isn't that right?
4: Yes, there could be another effect which can make us sort of unable to assess the cosmic structure even earlier than the Gibbons-Hawking region, which is due to the plasma, because we live in a galaxy and we are surrounded by interstellar medium. And interstellar medium has a fixed frequency because its density of electron are a constant, basically. So when the CMB photon frequency is going to dropping below the interstellar medium typical frequency, then our galaxy itself provide a screening mechanism for us to probing the early structures.
1: So the signal from our galaxy will overpower the CMB and we might not be able to see it anymore.
4: Yes, yes. However, if I mean let's just imagine if the smart human being can launch a rocket and to be able to escape from our own galaxy, we are still be able to Probably the early universe, although that we are blocked within mm-hmm. our own galaxies.
2: So.
1: Yeah, it'll be the, the time when we have uh, spaceships outside the galaxy. It could, uh, well, it could be, yes. <laughs> well, we better start working yeah. fast on that. How, mu- <laughs> how much time do we have before we need those working?
4: Oh, those also kind of billions of years. So billions we have enough time years. to work at that all to escape from our own galaxies. <laughs> yeah, we've got to, we've got to worry about our sun first, I guess. Yes, I think <laughs> we should worry for the demise of the sun. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, yeah, luckily, we are working on learning as much as we can at the moment about uh, the CMB and about cosmology in general. And there are lots of brand new experiments on the way, which you've mentioned before. You mentioned Bingo and you mentioned the SKA. Uh, Can you tell us a bit more about what they're going to be looking at in terms of cosmology and what's different about them uh, in comparison to what we've got already? What new stuff that we're going to
4: learn? So all of the purpose of making cosmological observations are to map out the structure in the universe because the information we can get to understanding the cosmic evolution is mainly derived from those observations which tells us the structure in the universe. So as we said, the CMB observation is mapping out the early structure, which is a two-dimensional information at very, very high redshift means very, very early time. And as you know, that Planck satellite launched by European Space Agency, which a lot of people here, including me as a member of, that it has already mapped out the cosmic microwave background in a very high precision. Mm -hmm. So there isn't much space to improve the observations of the Cosmic microwave background of the photon in the early time. Of course, there are some other uh, surveys going on, such as Sloan Digital Sky Survey,
1: which is a big map of galaxies. It's an atlas of galaxies. In yes, the sky. yes,
4: but it's not full sky mapping. It's only a uh, sort of a quarter of the sky, but goes through very deep. Uh, but this deep, uh, if you compare, is if, uh, if you compare with the cosmic volume, is still quite shallow. So um, all of these surveys, future is future survey, especially for. SKA, like uh, square kilometer array, or the European proposed satellite, so-called UK, etc., is going to try to map out the galaxy structure in a much deeper uh, scale so that we will be able to extract more information of the cosmic evolution. So we build this up a
1: big 3D Sort of eventually, of yes. How the universe has evolved over time.
4: Exactly. So we want to uh, not just get the information from the two-dimensional of the cosmic microwave background, but also we want to get information from three D volume of the universe, such as from the galaxies or just from the gas in the universe.
1: Ah, cool. And you mentioned the SKA again. Uh, the SKA is partially based in South Africa, and that's where you're going to be moving. You're leaving us soon. Oh, Which yeah. moving off to South Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about, is it coincidence that you're going there?
4: Yes, I think this is a very exciting time, actually, to uh, move into South Africa. So I'm here in Georgia Bank for one year, and I move to South Africa actually next week. Uh, so uh, South Africa is building up the, it's one of the major country of building the SKA. And uh, what we try to do is try to uh, build up a strong research group uh, of investigating the neutral hydrogen, investigating the galaxies uh, for SKA. So we want to develop very strong research programs in South Africa to really utilize the data to probing the early structure uh, of the universe.
1: Yeah, you've only been there one year, but you're, you're going to be missed for sure. So what university is it that you're moving to? Yeah,
4: so I'm moving to University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban. It's one of the top universities in South Africa. And they have been recruiting very, uh, very good people recently, in recent mm-hmm. years, to build up a strong astronomy group. And I'm fortunate to join them this year. Awesome.
1: Well, hopefully you'll come back for a visit and then we can interview you again and see how your research is going on.
4: Yeah, thank you. And I, I hope so. And I still keep strong collaboration with Georgia Bank uh, scientists. So I hope I will come back to visit very soon.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much. And thanks for the interview. Thank you. Thank you indeed. Right, bye.
0: Thanks for that, Charlie. Uh, that was really interesting.
1: No problem. Uh, and now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. And um for my odd and end, it ties in in a in a way to the interview that we gave with Lindsay, because it's talking about well. When I talked to him, we talked a little bit about the evolution of our technology and how it's getting better and better, and we can see more and more things. For my odd and end, I want to talk about uh, a special little planet that we've discovered, that we've now managed to actually video moving around its host star, sixty-three light years away. So its name is Beta Pictoris b. And it's a, it's a gas giant, so it's not really that little. It's uh, 10 times the size of Jupiter. It was first discovered in 2008. But astronomers have been keeping an eye on the star Beta Pictoris for a long time. Um, because back in 1984, astronomers at Caltech and Arizona followed up on the discovery that it was emitting excess infrared radiation. And they found that it had a circumstellar disk, which is uh, a disk of gas and dust that orbits a star... Um, and it was almost edge on to us. And at the time, they speculated that it might be to do with ongoing planetary formation. And this was back about twenty years ago. And they managed to image it in the radio. And I'll put a I will put a an image online so you can see what that looked like. But obviously, they were just speculating on whether there were planets there because technology wasn't yet good enough to see whether there was a planet there yet if you fast forward to the late 90s they'd done a bit more research on this we'd been doing a lot more science and we'd discovered that there were disc asymmetries so it was a bit wobbly um which they could reproduce using simulations where they put a giant gas planet inside of the disc so 10 years later they were sort of coming up with ideas of why this disc looked the way it did Um, and then in 2004 uh, more scientists detected silicate dust in the system, uh, and they explained that this could be due to the presence of a Jovian planet. So, a Jovian planet, like Jupiter, is a gas giant. So, in 2004, we thought that maybe there was a planet there. Maybe it was gas giant. We were, we were getting more knowledge, and wow, well, science was just getting more and more impressive. 2009, technology was actually becoming good enough that people wanted to see if they could image a planet around this system for the first time. Uh, so, astronomers used the VLT which is the Very Large Telescope. So even though our technology might be getting better, our, our naming systems aren't. <laughs> like the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, there's also the VLA, the Very Large Array, all sorts of imaginatively named things. But they used the VLT to capture a faint point source, uh, and they determined that this was a planet moving around this star. Uh, and now in 2015, we have a video. So it's an animated GIF. Uh, and it's it's quite short, it's about 11 seconds ro- 11 seconds long, and I'll put that on the website as well. And it was taken between 2013 and 2015, a series of images. It's uh, 1.5 years of this planet's orbit, which takes it 22 years to go around this star. Um, and what you can see is you can see this, this bright white dot uh, going around a big black sun, um, and it's black because they've used uh, this thing called a coronagraph to block out the sun so you can actually see uh, the planet itself. Because obviously a planets can be really dim compared to the sun. I just thought that was amazing that we've moved in 21 years from, is there a planet there? to look, you can see it moving around.
0: I've seen the GIF myself. Charlie showed it to us just now before we recorded the episode. And it is so cool. Mm. It's amazing. I mean, and I just think this story is lovely because it's really illustrative. I guess, of the kind of slow and often tedious, but ultimately rewarding nature of research in astronomy. You know, a lot of people ask me, oh, you know, Fiona, do you discover things? You know, are you going to discover something? Is that what your PhD is about? And I say, well, no, you know. It's a long process. Yeah, exactly. No one really makes these sweeping discoveries anymore. It's very, you know, you'll contribute some small little thing, some tiny little piece of the process that... There's lots
1: of people working together. Yeah,
0: so in this example, you know, people, a load of different people, a load of different PhD students and postdocs um and others who all worked together for 20 years uh, to get us this 11 seconds of video, which, you know, is amazing. It's, you know, you look at it and you think, oh, wow, that's so cool. Look at it there. Just orbiting around, but um, it's even more amazing, I think, when when you just consider the process that went into getting it. Lots of
1: breakthroughs in things like adaptive optics to help counteract our atmosphere's sort of uh, changes so that we can see the thing, and also dimming the star in order to see the thing. Yeah,
2: exactly. It's impressive that we've um, barely discovered our own solar system. And here we are looking at a planet around a different one. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
0: Amazing, yeah. uh, although we do we do know a lot more about our solar system lately, uh, which brings us on to my odd and end, um, which is about Pluto. Uh, and Pluto is a similar story, you know. When they discovered Pluto first, like they they, they sat down and they did their sums and they looked at how uh, the outer planets, you know, Neptune and Uranus were uh, orbiting around the Sun, and they said, well. Uh, based on our current knowledge, um, that's not the way they should be going. Their orbits should look different. And they said, so there must be something else out there. And from that little hunch, uh, they said, okay, right, well, we should start looking for another planet. And, um, so this fellow called Clyde Tombaugh sat down and basically just spent months and months looking at these pictures of the sky. And what he would do is he would look at Pictures taken, you know, night after night, and compare them with each other to see if there were any differences. He didn't have a computer doing it. He didn't have any help really. He that's what he would do, and um, he spotted a difference between one picture and the next. There was a little, tiny, barely perceivable spot there that he hadn't seen before, and that was Pluto. And he said, "Look, here's Pluto." And initially, they thought Pluto was huge. They were like, "Oh, it would have to be huge to account for the differences between the predicted orbits of the outer planets and the actual orbits." Uh, what they know now is that Pluto is actually really tiny. Uh, <laughs> but there's a of.
1: yeah, there's a load
0: yeah. of other really tiny stuff out there too that makes up the necessary mass. And so I have I have some updates for you um, on what the New Horizons um, has been sending back to us. So NASA have recently published some beautiful uh, partial co- color images um, that are, that were taken around July, but are only reaching us now because it takes ages. Because Pluto far away, um, but they're really stunning. Just um, the, the the detail that they're on scales as small as one point three kilometers. So that's that's um, the resolution that we're talking about here. You can um, that's the kind of those are the scale of the features that can be picked out. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's uh, they're just really beautiful. I mean,
1: you can see dunes and that you sort can, of thing. Well, dune-like things.
0: You can. So, I'm now going to kind of <laughs> try and let you see with your ears what I'm looking at here. <laughs> um, so you can see, you can see dunes and craters and mountains. Um, the NASA, the the clever folks over at NASA, have had a really close look, and uh, they have been able to pick out things like mountains and lakes of sea ice and sheer cliffs. You know, it it sounds a uh, that's it, Sounds really. I kind of want to go there. I want to. I want to go there. It looks really cool. <laughs> it's
1: selling it to you as a holiday. Yeah, it, it is. I've absolutely. Heard it described as well, Pluto's majestic heart. Yeah. Because of the little heart shaped thing. <laughs> yeah, but well, sweeping mountains. Exactly.
0: I mean, for such a tiny planet, I mean, you know, it's really um, the the kind of a you know the runt of the litter here, Pluto. It's such a small planet, but it sounds amazing. It just sounds like this marvelous, fantastic place um mm. so i think it's finally it's like peter its...
1: jackson's described it
0: yeah exactly <laughs> it is
1: to a great soundtrack a it sweeping. is that's
0: it yeah you probably want to listen to the lord of the rings soundtrack <laughs> while, you're, while you're reading these articles
1: <laughs> there is also a flyby i think i've seen a, a an image it must be computer genera- generated there's a video i've seen a video of a, a flyby over pluto where you can see all of this stuff in really great detail it's, uh, it's amazing what you can wow. The detail that we yeah
0: no it's incredible and these images that they've published so they're actually not in RGB so they're not using red green blue filters um they have blue and they have red and they have infrared uh, which they've put in instead of green so uh it's uh, yeah it's fun you 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 you're seeing it not the way a human eye would see it but it's still um still enough to kind of show you this beautiful detail and um what they've also what they've also found is um that there's a bunch of methane on the surface of Pluto. Uh, and so there's, an atmosphere. Yeah, well, maybe, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, it might be kind of, because it seems to be associated with geographical features. So, for example, there's a lot of methane. Um, I think it's methane ice, actually. I think it's frozen methane. And there's a lot um, kind of in, in on the flat bits, uh, but none so much in the mountains. What they're finding is that there's lots around the rims of craters, but none on the inside. And they find it generally tends to be uh, in illuminated areas uh, not in the dark so it's not in Mm. places that are in shade and they don't know is that because methane likes the light?
2: Uh,
0: (laughs) Anyway, you can read all about it on NASA's website they're publishing updates all the time and uh, you should really go and look at the pictures because although my words are lyrical and poetic I really can't (laughs) do it justice here on the radio
2: (laughs) Right, yeah, so um, moving a little bit close to home um, I've got a little bit of uh, a tidbit about Mars. And I think Indy's spoken before about these strange structures on the surface of Mars. They're called recurring slope lineae, which is a really annoying name for these basically dark stripes that appear on Mars, that appear during the summer and then disappear during the winter. And what they think they might be is these um, uh, salty water um, which appears during the summer and then, I guess, solidifies in the winter so you can't see it.
1: So liquid water on the surface?
2: Right, yeah, um, which is pretty cool in itself. Um, I think that offers a lot of um, possibilities for finding um, life in those areas. It's certainly somewhere where terrestrial life might fla- might thrive. Um, but that in itself has created a bit of an issue because um, the problem is we don't want to contaminate the places that we're visiting in space mm-hmm. we're trying to find life on these planets we don't want to contaminate it with terrestrial life and the, these um, salt slopes are good places for terrestrial life to start So thriving. do we just
1: want to trundle up
2: Right, yeah. To the water. I think, was this uh, raised
0: on the last podcast as I well? Think I think it was
1: think. something similar. I think,
0: yeah, right. we discussed um, something similar. And it was it was to do with Enceladus and how, you know, I think I was saying, you know, it would be great if they could ultimately send a probe down there. And then we were saying, yeah, but you, you don't want to do that because um, you might mess things up. Mm, um, you
1: might seed it. Yeah, we exactly, might, uh, yeah. Might introduce something.
0: And then we'll all be like, yay, we discovered life, but actually we oh, didn't. No, it's just didn't. the one yeah, on the back of the
2: rover. Yeah, so. <laughs> there's been this big meeting because they're considering where they're going to send the next Mars rover, this 2020 mission to Mars. And so it's it's about picking a good landing site that they can maybe look for Martian life, but at the same time, not contaminate it with our own life. So it's trying to look
0: from
1: I'm, afar
2: so yeah, it's really so exciting can, yeah, I'm reading
0: to- I'm very excited about this because I'm reading The Martian at the moment oh, yeah. um, which is uh, about to come out in the cinema on the 30th of October so I want to get it read before that time uh, and it is so good oh my god so if anyone doesn't know um, about this fantastic book um, <laughs> it's about this guy who's on a mission to Mars with um, some other astronauts and uh, um they're leaving. Uh, it's, there's a sandstorm and they have to abort the mission early. So they're all, you know, getting ready to get into the ascent vehicle and head back on up to their spaceship. Um, but as they're leaving, he gets blown away by a big gust of wind uh, and his crew think he's dead. And so they head off without him. Uh, and he wakes up a few hours later and, and is, trapped. is uh, trapped on Mars. Um uh, and it's just about that, really. I, I, I can't. I can't even spoil it for you because I'm only a third of the way through. But,
1: um, <laughs> well, it's probably good you don't spoil it. Yes. You, well, exactly. It. Exactly. Is yeah, it, yeah. But is it heavy on science? Is it heavy on technology? Is it's, it more human? Is it about a so guy? So
0: there's trapped? a little bit in there for everyone. There's a lot of talk about like computer programming and coding and stuff, which uh, I enjoy because I'm like, hey, I know what that means. Yeah, um, we do a lot of that here. <laughs> we do, in fact. <laughs> yeah. We do. In fact there's one line um though which really ticked me off, um, where the head of NASA is you know, one of the tech geeks is talking to him and uh and he says something computery to the head of NASA and the head of NASA responds I don't know what that means I'm a physics man not a computer man and it's <laughs> like you know like there's a difference yeah, really. <laughs>
2: yeah. well, we all do a lot of computer yeah things, we, we spend
0: most of our lives mm. sitting in front of computers typing in command after command doing the same old <laughs> repetitive tasks all for the pursuit of science and but it's when good.
1: there's a breakthrough it's worth it right Yeah,
0: exactly it is right. It is so like worth it
1: like that image exactly. of a planet exactly. going exactly well a that's just it a lot of people had to do life
0: a lot months. of people had yeah. to do a lot of very boring work to get there but they did it because they knew that when they did get there it would be really exciting Um, but uh, yeah no there's I mean it's about this guy he's a botanist actually now I'm not a botanist so I don't know how uh, accurate the the stuff he talks about is but he basically has to kind of figure out how to sustain himself
1: very limited resources yeah
0: with very limited resources uh, on Mars so um, perhaps if there are any botanists listening who've read the book they could um they could chime in and let us know. Well, did did um, Andy Weir Andy Weir is the author. Did he make any mistakes here? Is it um, I'm not could sure that if could if be dumb? Would
2: have experience of growing things in Old Martian moss. soils? <laughs> 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 um,
0: yeah, well, that's it. I mean, that's what makes it so hard uh, to know. Is it really feasible? Because um, uh, no no one's ever been in that situation. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, what often um, looks completely unfeasible can actually. Be possible, for example, um, someone told me a really funny anecdote the other day about how Apollo 13 was shown to test audiences. Uh, and one of the replies was from someone who obviously didn't know their history very well because he said, Well, I didn't like the kind of Hollywood happy ending, you know, that just doesn't seem realistic to me. <laughs> oh, dear. And it's true that in that film, there's kind of a lot of stuff that you're looking at. And if, if you didn't know it was true, you'd be like, come on. But, uh, well, but apparently the NASA happen.
2: scientists love it. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everyone's um, reading it out at NASA. So. It's, a, it's a very good film. It's that's my favourite film. Good endorsement for me. Mm, I've yeah. heard
1: they beamed it up to, or they've beamed the film up oh, the to the International mm. Space Station. Yeah. And, uh, they've, yeah had a, right. they've had a, a viewing there. It's not out in the UK yet, I don't think, as no. as of the time of recording yes. of this job um, cast.
0: Yeah, well, it's coming out. It's coming out on the 30th of October, I think. So uh, I'm very excited. You all should be too.
1: Yeah. So at, at time of recording of this podcast, which is the, the 25th, Friday, the 25th of September, the following Monday, which is Monday, the 28th, uh, NASA are going to have a big announcement about mars so they're very mum on the subject of what it is but uh when you yeah. listen to this they might have already given this uh given this talk and some people are speculating that it might be about these uh, these recurring slope linees and this hmm. liquid water so yeah take a look at that
0: yeah it's very exciting and also on the 28th um in other astronomy news is the um the, the harvest blood moon. The harvest right. blood
1: soup. The blood harvest moon. The, the super, b- super moon.
2: moon. It's an eclipse, anyway, yeah, which is what her. all the howling was about yeah. at the beginning. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. In case mad. you were
0: wondering <laughs> about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So what it is is it's a it's a lunar eclipse, uh, and it also occurs when the moon is going to be at its closest point to the Earth.
2: Also, well, it's so going to be really big then. It's going to well. be
1: really big. It's going to be really red. Hence the name is blood moon. Mm. Yes. Super moon. Then. Anyway, we've gone from uh, we've gone from exoplanets to Pluto and to Mars and then to the Moon and now right back on Earth. Here's Ian Morrison with what's happening in this month's night sky.
5: The night sky for October 2015. I sometimes think that October is perhaps the best time to view the heavens. We see much of what there is to see because After sunset, setting over in the west, we have the Summer Triangle, the bright stars Vega, Deneb and Altair, and the constellation of Cygnus the Swan, Lyra and Aquila. And that's a beautiful region of the sky. The brightest stars of Cygnus the Swan make up what's called the Northern Cross, and the faintest of those near the horizon as it's setting over in the west is Alberio. This is a wonderful double star, well worth looking at with a small telescope, sort of a gold and blue pair of stars. And then higher in the south, we have the square of Pegasus. A good test of how transparent the sky is, and also how good your eyes are, is how many stars you can typically see inside that square. To be honest, I don't tend to see very many now. The top left star of the square of Pegasus is called Alpharats. It's actually Alpha Andromedae. And it's the starting point to find the great galaxy in Andromeda, M31. You go one bright star to the left, fork round about 30 degrees, to the second bright star, then turn through a right angle to the right, past one star, and then hopefully you'll see a fuzzy glow. And if my voice isn't very good today, it's because I was up till about 3 o'clock this morning imaging it, with an 8 inch telescope. Again, if the sky is very transparent, there's a chance of actually finding M33 in triangulum. Start at Andromeda, come back to the star where you turn sharp right, and carry on a bit further, I suspect, and you should find M33. But it's not very bright. It needs a very transparent sky to see it, and probably something like. 8 by 40 binoculars. Above Andromeda is Cassiopeia, the W shape. In fact, the right hand, V of the W, actually points down to Andromeda. It's another way of finding it. And then along the Milky Way, because that's tracking across the sky from Cygnus through Cassiopeia, we have Perseus and Auriga. And between Cassiopeia and Perseus, we have a wonderful region containing the double cluster, two lovely open clusters side by side. Again, it's a lovely thing to see. Ariga is rising over in the east. It again has some very nice open clusters. They're called M37, M38, and M36. Not actually in that order. But finally, if you stay up a reasonable time, as I did last night, you will actually see the Pleiades, rising higher in the east, and below that the orange-red star of Aldebaran. It lies in the direction of the Hyades Cluster, although it's only about half the distance from us to it. And again, well after midnight, you'll actually see the stars of Orion rising. So if you stayed up for a long time on an October night, you'd have a lovely view of the heavens. But what about the planets? Well, to be honest, all of the planetary fun this month is in the pre-dawn sky. There's very little to see, sadly, in the evening. First of all, what about Jupiter? It's one of the three pre-dawn planets that we can observe this month, along with Mars and Venus. shining at magnitude minus 1.7, increasing a fraction during the month, it starts the month the lowest of the three, and will be just 12 degrees above the eastern horizon, as dawn breaks, rises earlier as the month progresses, moving upwards towards Regulus under the body of Leo, the lion, and as we shall see, will meet with Mars on the 17th of the month. As the Earth moves towards Jupiter, the size of its disk increases slightly from 31.4 to 33 arcseconds, so early risers should be able to easily see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere and the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn, at the start of October, there's just a chance to see it. It's shiny at magnitude plus 1.6, so not that bright, and the elevation will be just about 7 degrees above the southwestern horizon, about 45 minutes after sunset. And as the month progresses, it will become increasingly hard to spot. It starts the month in eastern Libra, setting around two hours after sun, but passes into Scorpius on the 16th and is less than one degree above beta Scorpii on the 26th of the month. Sadly, of course, the atmosphere will seriously limit our view of its 15 arc-second disk and rings, which are now actually open to about 24 degrees. That's pretty good. To be honest, we'll have to wait for a few months until it can be seen again in the pre-dawn sky. Mercury is also a pre-dawn object this month, becoming visible at magnitude plus 0.3 around the 11th, close to a thin crescent moon, but just 8 degrees above the horizon some 40 minutes before sunrise. Binoculars may well be needed to spot it. On that day, Mercury will lie some 20 degrees below Jupiter, It reaches its greatest elongation west on the 16th but then falls back towards the Sun, brightening to magnitude minus 1 as it does so, but obviously then becoming harder to spot even though it's brighter. Mars is also a pre-dawn object, starting the month almost halfway between Venus above and Jupiter below, shining at magnitude plus 1.8, some 23 degrees above the eastern horizon, about an hour before sunrise. On the mornings of the 17th and 18th, Mars, then at a magnitude of plus 1.7, is less than half a degree from magnitude minus 1.8 Jupiter, which actually will appear almost exactly eight times wider than Mars. With its disk just four arc seconds across, no details will be seen on its salmon pink surface, unless, of course, you have access to the Hubble Space Telescope. Venus, shining initially at magnitude minus 4.7, will dominate the pre-dawn sky this month and will be some 30 degrees above the horizon as dawn breaks at the start of October. On the 26th of the month, it reaches greatest elongation west, some 46 degrees away in angular distance from the Sun. It then rises some four hours before the Sun, although apparently its disk will not appear half-lit until several days later. It's an interesting phenomenon. Its disk diameter shrinks from 33 to 23 arc seconds during the month, but at the same time, the percentage of the disk which is illuminated, it's called the phase, increases from 35 to 53%. As a result, the effective area reflecting the sun's light remains almost constant, which is why the magnitude only drops to minus 4.5 by month's end. Well, what about the highlights? They largely are linked to those planets, but also October is a very good month to observe Uranus with a small telescope. It comes into opposition, and that's when it's nearest the Earth, on the night of the 11th, 12th of October. And it'll be particularly well seen around opposition because then it's new moon. So no moonlight will intrude. Its magnitude is plus 5.9, So Uranus should be easily spotted in binoculars lying in the southern part of Pisces to the east of the circlet asterism and about 3 degrees south of a line joining 4th magnitude Epsilon Piscium and Delta Piscium. And I give a chart on the night sky page on the Jodrell Bank website. Nicely, it rises to an elevation of about 45 degrees when due south. And given a telescope of 4 inches or more diameter, it should be possible to see it has a disk. It's about 3.6 arc seconds across. It has a rather nice pale green-blue tint. If you have a large telescope, there's quite an observing challenge to try and pick up its four brightest satellites, Arial, Umbriel, Titania and Oberon. They're all about 14th magnitude. So you need a good night, excellent seeing, and a telescope of at least 8 inches or more. But that's a a thing to try. So finally, uh, those links between the various planets in the pre-dawn sky. October the 3rd, looking east, if clear, you'll see the planets Venus above, Mars middle and Jupiter below, making a rather lovely arc across the sky below the body of Leo. And between Mars and Venus, you should also spot Regulus, Alpha Leonis. On the 8th and 9th, one hour before sunrise, the planets Venus, Mars and Jupiter will be joined by a thin crescent moon, again in the eastern sky about an hour before sunrise. Jupiter is closing in on Mars, and it might just be possible to spot Mercury lying just above the horizon if you have a very clear view in this direction. It might be better to spot Mercury on the 11th, about 30 minutes before sunrise, Given clear skies again and a low eastern horizon, Mercury will be just two and a half degrees to the lower left of a very thin crescent moon. That would make a very nice imaging opportunity. October the 17th, one hour before sunrise, there is a conjunction of Jupiter and Mars. So if clear, you should be able to spot Mars, shining at magnitude plus 1.7, just 24 arc minutes to the left of Jupiter, at magnitude minus 1.8. And Venus at magnitude minus 4.4 will then be lying about 6 degrees to their upper right. I quite often give you something to observe on the lunar surface, and this month I've chosen Mons Piton and the crater Cassini. Mons Piton is an isolated lunar mountain located in the eastern part of Mare Imbrium. Southeast of the crater Plato and west of the crater Cassini. It has a diameter of 25 kilometres and a height of 3, 2.3 kilometres. And you can actually calculate the height from the length of the shadow it casts. It's quite a nice exercise for astronomy students. Cassini is a 57 kilometre diameter crater which has been flooded with lava. It's then been impacted many times and holds within its borders two significant craters, Cassini A, the larger, and Cassini B. So it's a nice little bit of the moon to look up. I enjoy that part, and you've also got over to the left, um, Sinus Iridum, the sea of rainbows, and above that, as I said, Plato. So the moon is nice. I know it sometimes stops us seeing faint objects, but when it's there, enjoy it, and have a good month of observing.
2: Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's Haritina Mogosanu with the night sky where you are.
6: Welcome to Aotearoa, New Zealand, where the sea surrounds us from all directions, the sky is darker than dark, and the stars are very bright. My name is Haritina Mogosanu, and today I will be your storyteller from Space Place at Carter Observatory in the Southern Hemisphere. For the last few months... Here, in New Zealand, we have been looking a lot at the stars in our flag. This is the first time in history that all New Zealanders will have a say in the design of a new New Zealand flag. Our current flag was designed in 1859 and adopted as the national flag in 1902. It flies the Union Jack and the Southern Cross. So we will start our journey of the October night sky pointing at the Southern Cross or Crooks as it is officially named by the International Astronomical Union. We will follow the Milky Way as usual looking at what other wonderful things we can see along it. On the way across the sky we will talk about the third brightest, second brightest and the brightest stars in the sky and where to find them we will discover luminous and massive stars along the way we will also look at flags of the world that have stars moons and suns and finally wander away with the planets in the morning sky so why don't you just turn south at night south is opposite from the part of the sky known as the ecliptic where we can see the sun and the planets and the moon In the southern hemisphere, the ecliptic goes through the northern part of the sky. Always pointing to the southern cross in the southwest are the pointers, Beta and Alpha Centauri, making a vertical pair at about 60 degrees declination south. Alpha Centauri, the top pointer, is the closest naked eye star at 4.3 light years away and it's the third brightest star in the entire sky. Beta Centauri is a blue giant star, very hot and very luminous, hundreds of light years away. Our most famous constellation is also the smallest of the 88 constellations of the sky, covering a patch of only 68 square degrees. Although about 5000 years ago it was completely visible at midnight during spring, Even from mid-latitudes in the northern hemisphere, the Earth's precession gradually brought it beneath the northern line. The general precession, as it is known in astronomy, is the wobble of the Earth about its axis. This wobble will also bring into view different polar stars. The circuit is completed in 26,000 years, which, coincidentally, is the distance towards the center of the Milky Way. Because of the precession, the Southern Cross is only circumpolar now to those living south of 34 degrees latitude south, although it can be seen up to below 26 degrees latitude north, the latitude of Miami. Circumpolar means it never sets nor rises, but travels the sky in a big circle. The Southern Cross was originally part of the constellation of Centaurus. Augustine Royer established the Southern Cross as a constellation in 1679. The Southern Cross is a true beacon of the Southern Hemisphere. It is very easy to find directions by it, even though it is not indicating the South Celestial Pole directly. Personally, I find it easier to find my way here in the Southern Hemisphere with the help of the Southern Cross than I did in the Northern Hemisphere looking for Polaris. The Southern Cross is a constellation within the Sky River of the Milky Way. Being so small, it fits almost perfectly in the white flow of the stars. Opposite the Southern Cross, also within the Milky Way and circumpolar to the Northern Hemisphere, is Cassiopeia, the W Queen. The Southern Cross is the home of the beautiful open cluster jewel box, or NGC 4755, which to the naked eye appears like a fuzzy patch. A telescope would reveal stars that shine in many colors and they are very beautiful. Lower in the sky than the Southern Cross in October, it's the Diamond Cross, an asterism in the southern constellation of Carina. The patterns that people make of the stars are called asterisms. In contrast, constellations are set areas or patches of the sky, just like countries on Earth, which takes their name from asterisms. Asterisms are dot-to-dot-doodle's fanciful patterns on the celestial firmament. So the Diamond Cross asterism, just like its name describes it, looks like a diamond. Pointing towards the Milky Way at one side, adjacent to Tetacarine is a small open cluster visible with binoculars. Tetacarine marks the northeastern end of the Diamond Cross asterism, and it's also the brightest star in the open star cluster IC 2602. The cluster is also known as the Running Man or the Southern Pleiades, but to me it has always looked like the letter M. Also in the constellation of Carina, one of the most spectacular stars of the southern sky, Eta Carinae, is a stellar system containing at least two stars with a combined luminosity over five million times that of the Sun. Its size is about 250 times the size of the Sun. Colliding powerful winds form a bow shock, similar to the sonic boom from a supersonic airplane. That then heats the gas between the stars. The two stars travel around each other along highly elliptical paths during their five-and-a-half year-long orbit. The Chandra X-ray Observatory discovered that depending on where each star is on its oval-shaped trajectory, the distance between them changes by a factor of 20. Stars like Eta Carinae are just a few floating among the rest of 400 billion that make our galaxy. At about 7500 light years from Earth, it was first recorded as a fourth magnitude star. It brightened considerably over the period 1836 to 1856 in an event known as the Great Eruption. Eta Carinae became the second brightest star in the sky in 1843 before fading to well below naked eye visibility. I have seen Eta Carinae looking through a 40 centimeter Bowler and Cheven's telescope here at the Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington. Or to be more precise, I have seen the Homunculus Nebula. It looked like a tiny hourglass. This is probably the most spectacular deep-sky memory I have from the southern hemisphere. I remember how the silence of the night felt heavy and dense around me whilst my eye was stuck to the telescope. I saw it using my peripheral vision with the help of my rod cells from the retina. The time almost stopped for me whilst I was basking in the glory of the light I was receiving from Eta Carine. What a night! From a star invisible to the naked eye, let's jump onto the other side of the magnitude scale. Let's look at the brightest star from Carina, Canopus, the famous navigator of the golden Fleece ship, Argonavis. In Maori, this star is called Atutahi and he is the chief of all the stars in the sky. Low in the southeast, Canopus can be seen at dusk often twinkling colorfully. It swings up into the eastern sky during the night. Canopus is a circumpolar star as seen from Wellington. Not only is Canopus the brightest star from Carina, but it is also the second brightest star in the entire sky to our naked eye. As many astronomers from New Zealand call their cats Canopus, this star is also known here as the Cat Star. A yellow star Canopus is 13 times the sun's brightness and 300 light years away. Now, on to our last cross. The false cross is yet another asterism in the flow of the Milky Way. It belongs to the constellation of Vela. A bit bigger than the southern cross, it looks almost identical, but you can tell that it is the false cross because it doesn't have pointer stars pointing at it. Both the diamond cross and the false cross are sometimes mistaken for the true crooks, although the false cross has always been a worse deceiver than the diamond cross because most of its stars have approximately the same declinations as the stars of crooks. The story goes here in New Zealand that whoever followed the false cross ended up in Australia. If that were true, then Australia would have had perhaps the false cross on their flag. Instead, it has the southern cross as well. However, the Australian flag also sports a fifth star, Epsilon Crucis, as well as the big star of the Commonwealth, placed just underneath the Union Jack. The Southern Hemisphere teems with astronomy-related national flags. The smallest of the 88 constellations is found on state flags, provinces' flags, company logos and many more. Australia, New Zealand, Niue, Tokelau, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, and in the South American continent, Santa Cruz in Argentina, Antarctica and Mercosur, which is the South American Common Market, and the flags flown by Argentina and Chile in Antarctica have the Southern Cross on them. Whilst most of these countries fly the Southern Cross, I believe that the most spectacular flag, astronomically speaking, it's the flag of Brazil, a true star chart. It is, in fact, a sky chart over Brazil's night sky on November 15, when the Republic of Brazil was proclaimed. There are 21 stars on the chart representing the states of Brazil, including the stars of the Southern Cross, Canopus, Procyon and Sirius, Sigma Octantis, Spica and also Scorpius, which is where I want to go next in our journey. Scorpius it's the official name of the constellation, which is only a patch in the sky and has an eye-catching asterism in it that looks like everything it was named after. Scorpion, fishhook, question mark, dragon and many other things. Visible from New Zealand at this time of the year, you can find it if you follow the two pointers of the Southern Cross but in opposite direction. Above them lays Triangulum Australe, below is lupus the wolf. In front of them, the fishhook of the ancient navigator Maui almost dragged the Milky Way down from the sky. According to the Maori legend, it will continue to do so all throughout October. Rehua, the Maori name for Antares, marks the bait of the hook. Above Scorpius, the fishhook, is Corona Australis, the southern crown, a round group of stars that look just like fireworks spreading apart, or like a teaspoon of the teapot, according to some who like tea. As observed from the Northern Hemisphere, The asterism looks like a scorpion, which only goes up above the horizon for 30 degrees, which makes it seem to rather crawl around the horizon like a gigantic scorpion would do. Imagine this in the desert of Sahara at night. Once the bottom of a sea, the desert now teems with creatures like the scorpion and its name made it to the stars, given probably by the other great navigators, by the stars, the ancient caravan leaders. Here in Aotaroa, New Zealand, because of our position on Earth, Scorpius climbs all the way up to zenith, which is why the fishing hook was considered the zenith asterism of New Zealand by the ancient Maori navigators. Antares, the brightest star in the constellation of Scorpius, is a red giant star. 600 light-years away and 19,000 times brighter than the Sun. Red giants are dying stars wringing their last of the thermonuclear energy from their cores. Massive ones like Antares end in a spectacular supernova explosion, although it is believed that nothing will compare to the explosion from Eta Carinae, which is expected to end as a hypernova in the near astronomical future. Above and right of the fishhook, the teapot made by the brightest stars of Sagittarius is upside down in our southern hemisphere view. Below the fishhook is Saturn, currently the only planet in the evening sky. It is midway down the western sky at dusk and set in the southwest around 10pm mid-month. The moon is just below Saturn on the 16th and well to its right on the 17th. As we have arrived to the moon, please note that this is also on some countries' flags. And a moon-bearing flag is not automatically a Muslim flag. In fact, the crescent moon and star symbol predates Islam by thousands of years. The city of Byzantium, also known as Constantinople, and now Istanbul, adopted the crescent moon as its symbol long before Islam when the Turks conquered Constantinople in 1453, they adopted its flag as well. Algeria, Azerbaijan, Brunei, Union of the Comoros, Laos, Libya, Malaysia, Maldives, Mauritania, Pakistan, Palau, which has a full moon on its flag, Singapore, Tunisia, Turkey, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Western Sahara, South Carolina, and Northern Cyprus, they all have the moon on their flags, whereas the US has their flag on the moon, a star-spangled banner. This is the furthest place that a flag was taken by humans. Going back on the path of the Milky Way, right at the center of it, a spectacular bird guards the center of our galaxy. This is the Milky Way Kiwi, a shape made from dark dust within the Milky Way. More than 10 years ago, astrophotographers from New Zealand were taking snapshots of the night sky. One of them looked at the pictures and realized that the dark patch known in the Northern Hemisphere as the Dark Horse, being upside down in here, looked like a great galactic kiwi bird. But as I realized later while traveling, you either have to be from New Zealand or have friends in New Zealand to know what a kiwi bird looks like. The Milky Way kiwi is my absolute favorite object in the night sky and once I saw it with the naked eye from Lake Tekapo in the South Island. The Milky Way is our edgewise view of the galaxy, the pancake of billions of stars of which the Sun is just one. The thick hub of the galaxy, 26,000 light years away, is in Sagittarius. The actual center, with a black hole 4 million times the sun's mass, is hidden by dust clouds in space which make interesting shapes like our Milky Way Kiwi. The direction of the black hole is right on the top of the head of the Milky Way Kiwi, just like a jewel on a crown. So, at just 26,000 light years from Earth, Sagittarius A is one of the very few black holes where we can actually witness the flow of matter nearby. The Very Large Telescope in Chile has some interesting stories to tell about that. Sliding down the Milky Way towards north, the skyline meets the horizon near Vega. Vega is setting in the late evening. It is 50 times brighter than the sun shining from 25 light years away. Vega is the fifth brightest star in the sky. Looking in the same direction as for Vega, but in the morning sky, you will notice the dog star Sirius. Sirius is a blue giant and the brightest star in the sky, twice as bright as Canopus, the cat star. This does not mean that dogs are brighter than cats in general, but just that the dog is closer to us at about 8 light years distance. But it seems that this dog's yard is the home of both the brightest naked eye star and also of the largest known star. That is V.Y. Canis Majoris, a red hypergiant star in the Canis Major constellation, our big dog. The star is located about 5,000 light-years from Earth. Its upper size is believed to be more than 1,540 times the size of the Sun. Placed in our solar system, its surface would extend out past the orbit of Saturn. That's the biggest star that we know of. But the Milky Way probably has dozens of stars that are even larger, obscured by gas and dust, so we can't see them. Neighboring it, in the constellation of Orion, Betelgeuse in Maori Putara, it's a familiar star located in the shoulder of Orion. This red supergiant star has a radius of 950 to 1200 times the size of the Sun and would engulf the orbit of Jupiter if placed in our solar system. With the Milky Way descending from the heavens in October, the sky looks almost empty on the other side, a part of a few smidges and bright stars. But that means nothing. When the Hubble Space Telescope turned toward a part of the sky that was carefully selected to be as empty of stars as possible, it took the famous Hubble Ultra Deep Sky picture, the deepest portrait of the visible universe ever achieved by humankind. Where our eye sees only empty blackness, Hubble reveals a universe teeming with galaxies. Still, with the naked eye, it's almost empty. Nearing zenith, it's Grus, the famous double-double asterism. Towards north, the great square of Pegasus, the flying horse adorns the northern horizon underneath it we can just barely observe the fourth galaxy visible with the naked eye andromeda is a dash on the blackness of the sky towards south the large and small clouds of magellan look like two misty patches of light in the southeast sky they are easily seen by eye on a dark moonless night they are galaxies just like our milky way but much smaller the large cloud is about 5% the mass of our galaxy and the small one about 3%. That it's still many billions of stars in each. And it is believed that the Large Magellanic Cloud is the home of the most massive stars that we have observed. On moonless evenings in a dark rural sky, the zodiac light is visible in the west. It looks like late twilight. One sees a faint broad column of light passing through Libra. It is sunlight reflecting off meteoric dust in the plane of the solar system. The dust may have come from a big comet many centuries ago. Bright planets appear in the eastern dawn sky. Brilliant silver Venus rises two hours before the sun through October. That's around 5 a.m. at the beginning of the month. Golden Jupiter is on the dawn horizon at 6 a.m. before and right of Venus. Between the two bright planets at the beginning of the month are the white star Regulus and the reddish planet Mars. Mars has a flag too, although according to the Outer Space Treaty no country can claim it. The flag was created as a symbol of the vision for the future history of Mars, in which the planet is transformed from red to green and then blue, just like the Earth. It flies the colors red, green and blue, and it symbolizes also liberty, as every three-color flag does. Beyond Mars Jupiter moves up the dawn sky. By mid-month it is passing Mars. The pair are less than a full moon's width apart on the morning of the 18th. Around the 26th Jupiter passes by Venus, making an eye-catching pairing of bright planets in the dawn. Jupiter and Mars are on the far side of the Sun. Jupiter is nine hundred and twenty million kilometers away mars is three hundred and forty five million kilometers venus is on our side of the sun 92 million kilometers away on the 15th the sun is rising in the morning for most of us and with it a new day begins there are many countries that have the sun on their flags i want to mention only one the flag of Tuktoyatuk, located in the Northwest Territories of Canada. What's so special about this flag? It harbors the midnight sun, something I always dreamed to see. Flags are a reminder of things that matter to us. Their symbolism is helping us focus our attention like a beacon in the wilderness. Beacons help guide navigators to their destinations, just like the stars can do. May the stars be with you. This concludes our jotcast for October 2015 at Space Place at Carter Observatory. As the Maori say, Efiti ana na terangi, the stars are shining in the sky. Kotakoto ake nei whilst Mother Earth lays beneath. Kaha and Clear Skies, from the space place at Carter Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand.
1: Thanks for that, Harizina. And now on to the feedback. So we've got no posts this month. Uh, we've got one email. I'll pass that uh, yeah. <laughs> pass pass yeah. over to you, Fiona.
0: So we have one email, uh, which is a gripe about how on our website we've spelt Ardbeg Whiskey with an E. Um, uh, and the email says, how dare you spell it, uh, W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. <laughs> and it's clearly a whiskey with no E, W-H-I-S-K-Y. Now what this person is referring to, um, is that when it's a Scotch, it's spelled without an E. And when it's an Irish whiskey, uh, it's spelled with an E. And th- and then this person goes on to say, <laughs> I wouldn't expect the English to know the difference. Now, I'm the one actually who wrote up that, that um, <laughs> odd and end because uh, it was my odd and end. Uh, and I spelled it with an E because I slipped up because I'm Irish. <laughs> I was distracted. I think I was on the bus. <laughs> and I reverted back to my Irish settings without thinking. Mm. Um, but I, yeah, I would just like to stress that again. I'm Irish, not mm. English. And I do know the difference
1: uh and i am english and don't know the difference i'm not a big whiskey (laughs) yeah i don't know the difference but um but yeah yeah that was that was our that That was
0: interesting thanks for that (laughs) i didn't know that yeah exactly (laughs) a little bit of whiskey knowledge and now
2: back to astronomy related things right yeah so back to facebook um thank you for all the likes and on twitter hello to our new followers thanks for the retweets and favorites and if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at
0: www.jodcast.net. Um, and I'm just going to put in here that uh, we'd really love if you sent us your pictures and videos of the lunar eclipse on the 28th. We'd really like to see um, what that looks like from wherever you are in the world. Um, we'd really love to get some of you sending in your pictures. So you can send those all. Uh, you can You can email them to
1: us. We'll find a place to put them on the website.
0: Yeah, we'll find a place to put them up on the website. And if you have pictures, you can email them to jodcastfeedback at jb.man.ac.uk.
1: And if you want to tweet them to us, you can as well. Uh, We can retweet those. We want to get more involved. uh,
0: Exactly, exactly. So send us your pictures um, of the blood harvest moon. We want to see them. (laughs) Uh, You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast.
1: And on Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast.
0: On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast.
1: Please send us post. The address is on the website.
0: And thank you to yin Ma for the interview. The editors were Ben Shaw, Ian Harrison and Charlie Walker. And the producer was Charlie Walker. And until next time, Jod on. on!